abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. I choose to begin today's episode on January 9th, 1978. In the city of Qom, Iran, a holy place for Shia Muslims, a protest against a demeaning article mocking Ayatollah Khomeini, an exiled Muslim cleric who was critical of the Shah and his regime, was undergoing peacefully. The article that was written with the notion of reducing the religious opposition's provocation against the Shah backfired. Once violence erupted during the mostly quiet protest, security forces began shooting at the crowds and several people were killed. This single event, fueled by years of popular unrest against the Shah's regime, unleashed suppressed anger and disappointment. Tumultuous demonstrations ensued and surges of violence between government forces and civilians resulted in the fall of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. He and his family were exiled. A year and a week passed since the first demonstration. On February 1st, two weeks after the Shah fled to Egypt, Ayatollah Khomeini, a staunch campaigner to instate in Iran the Sharia law, the Islamic religious law, who was by now the head of the revolutionary council he created, landed in Tehran after 14 years in exile. The formation of the Islamic Republic of Iran soon followed. Khomeini became the supreme leader of the new republic. On February 18, 1979, the Israeli embassy in Tehran was closed some two weeks after Ayatollah Khomeini landed back in Tehran. There were no surprises there. After all, you would not expect to have an embassy of a country the supreme leader dubs the enemy of Islam and the little Satan. Nearly three decades of very close relations between Iran and Israel were cut quite abruptly. Iran under the Shah turned to the West, and the money the country received for its oil was invested in national infrastructure and education, and thus the country was modernized. To some, though, modernization, and especially its pace, were a bit too much. For others, westernizing the country and getting further away from the Iranian and Islamic cultures were the source of discomfort. 
However, it seems that all agreed that the Shah's authoritarian regime had ran its course. safe to say that today, the Islamic Republic of Iran's regime redefines autocracy, oppression, and state violence. You might understand now how excited I was to meet today's guest. Born in Iran, Nick Kausal studied geology at the University of Tehran. He channeled his talent and wit to an important political art form, cartoons. Alongside his cartooning career, he was also a journalist with several publications in Iran. On February 5th, 2000, his life changed in a way he could not have even imagined. A cartoon he drew a week before, commenting on the freedom of speech in Iran, one would say a bold move by any standard to begin with, had a word game in it that had an implied criticism on a powerful cleric. Just as with the article from 1978, Nick's cartoon created an unrest. He was arrested, tried, and put in jail. Although he was released six days afterwards, life in Iran became impossible for him and he had to flee the country. He's been living in exile since 2003. Nikausa is fighting hard against the regime that has put his life on an unforeseen trajectory. The means? Knowledge. He focuses his work on water issues and does his utmost to warn Iranians of a dark future. Under the headline, Iran is committing suicide by dehydration, Kosar co-wrote an article with Ali Reza Nader for Foreign Policy magazine. Before the 1979 revolution, they write, Iran's population was less than 34 million, and its renewable water resources were around 135 billion cubic meters. In the last few years, however, as the population reached more than 80 million, their renewable water resources have been reduced to almost 80 billion cubic meters due to lower precipitation and higher evaporation. Meanwhile, the consumption rate per capita has risen. This is an unsustainable trend heading toward a tragic conclusion. They write, put plainly, it is a 75% reduction in available water per capita. Thus, they conclude, the Islamic Republic has been the primary force in creating Iran's water crisis. It lacks the desire and ability to govern Iran for the benefit of its people. It is no wonder that many Iranian farmers, once considered a natural constituent for the revolutionary regime, now call for its overthrow. As long as the regime lives, the country will face assured drought and destruction. His personal story, one of persecution whilst pursuing change for his country, is determination personified. I had the chance to meet Nick in a hotel a stone throw away from my home in Haifa, Israel, when he was a guest of the Esri Center for Iran and Persian Gulf Studies at the University of Haifa. His talk during the 11th Annual Persian Gulf Studies Conference in Israel was titled Iran's Water Crisis and What Iranians Need to Learn from Israel. I asked him, why water? Water is not just something you drink. It's politics, it's social issues, it's uh, culture, it's life, everything. 
And without water, I believe you cannot talk about democratization of the country. You cannot talk about human rights. Because when you don't have water or we don't have sufficient resources of water, people would not care for some other things that are fancied by many other people around the world. Meaning? Like if you talk about hijab, if somebody has to choose between water and hijab, which one would she choose? If somebody has to choose between life and death and life comes with water, would they care about, let's say, being uh, under a lot of pressure by the Iranian regime or not? So when Iranian, when the Iranian regime doesn't uh, supply its citizens with enough water, it somehow takes them as its own hostages. I want to help people understand that they are not supposed to be the hostage of this hostage-taking system, but through a very important means, water. They have to understand the value. They have to understand that if they don't care about their water resources, many of them will be forced out of the country in the next few decades because the amount of renewable water resources in Iran has reduced a lot. The population has gone from around 34, 35 million to 82 million in the last four decades. And the regime has built so many dams that have actually destroyed aquifers and rivers. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to pick on something you said a moment ago, not even a moment ago. You said if they won't take care of their water, people will be forced out of the country. You yourself have been forced out of the country due to water issues. The story goes back to, I wanted to say 17 years ago, but I have to say even longer than that. I'm the son of an important water scientist, watershed management scientist in Iran, who started using flood water to recharge aquifers. And his plan was cheap and affordable, but the regime didn't like it, or some elements of the regime didn't like it, because you cannot steal money out of cheap and affordable projects, because you cannot take any commissions. When you build a big multi-million dollar dam, some people can take out 20 to 30 percent out of it. The whole cost of the dam is disappearing in many cases. A dam like uh, the Gotvan Dam in southern Iran was estimated to cost about $1.2 billion. The regime used $3.3 billion to build that dam. The time extension of building that dam was costly. It was supposed to be done in less than five years. It took about 14 years. That's one thing. They wanted to create jobs for many members of the Revolutionary Guard, so that's another thing. But then some money was lost in between. There, and there are so many examples. And because there's no auditing for projects run by the Revolutionary Guards, it's hard to determine how much money has been taken. Just to be conservative, I'm saying 20 to 30 percent. So I was interested in working on water issues. I became a geologist to understand things related to water better and better. At that time, I was a cartoonist working for the media, but I also used to write about water issues. And in 2001, I wrote a few op-eds warning the government that their water policy is going to ruin the country. And I got a call from the president's office 
President Khatami's office, and they told me that the president wants to see you. That doesn't sound good. Uh, I I wasn't scared of the president, and because I had gone to prison before that. I I like the way that nonchalantly you say I I've gone to prison before that. You haven't committed any moral crimes, have you? I drew a cartoon that caused a national security crisis because I made fun of an ayatollah, a very powerful ayatollah. And because of that, the city of Qom was on a four-day protest. And thousands of people all around the country were, were calling for my death in early 2000. So by the regime standards, that was a crime that I should have been punished because of that. Making fun of an Ayatollah is really dangerous. And I did it. Why did you do it? Uh, I think I had to. I was obliged to. You, you were aware of such a move, what it might instigate. At the time that I drew that cartoon, I didn't think that I had crossed any lines because I had used a cartoon character that, that the name of that character rhymed with the name of the Ayatollah. So I didn't refer to the Ayatollah directly. I used an indirect attack I didn't think that drawing a cartoon using, let's say, an animal character and using a name that just rhymes with the name of the Ayatollah, that means Ayatollah Misbah Yazdi, would mess up things. But it did. And uh, the fundamentalists, the Islamists, understood what I was playing with. And because of that, although that newspaper had a, didn't have a big circulation, I was told that more than two million photocopies were made of my cartoon. Just the cartoon itself? Just the cartoon itself. The funnier thing is that uh, the people who were chanting against me and shouting for my death, not just in the city of Qom, but also all around the country in the Friday prayers, had not seen the cartoon. And they, and they considered what I had done against Islam, though I had just messed up with what the Ayatollah had said or claimed claiming that there's a CIA operative in Tehran to pay and bribe uh, Iranian journalists against Islam. So I didn't even mention his name or anything. I just used the name for the character that was a crocodile. Crocodile in Persian is Temsah. And the Ayatollah's name was Mesbah. They called him Professor Mesbah. I called the crocodile Professor Crocodile, Professor Temsah. The ones who were smart enough understood what I was referring to, but I hadn't used the direct name. And then I was um, summoned by the press court. And press courts? Press court. We had a press court in Tehran. Press court? Yes. Okay. And then... Uh, the, 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 these two things usually don't go together in most countries to have a press court. Yeah, we you ha- might have an ethics committee or something like that. No, no, Not that was court. part of the judiciary. And part of the judiciary? Yes. So I was uh, summoned. I appeared before the judge. He was Judge Dredd, in a way. And he interrogated me for three and a half hours. And because he wasn't satisfied, he sent me to the Evin prison. That's the most notorious prison in Iran. I was sent to Section 209 that belonged to the Minister of Intelligence. And uh, I was very lucky. I slept 14 hours a day in prison. (laughs) Something you didn't get to do when you live? Not at all, because at that time I was working for three newspapers, drawing three cartoons a day, and probably, I think, 12 to 13 hours out of home working for different publications. 
So yeah, I was very lucky for that week. But I I knew that something was uh, getting sketchy out of prison. So you're not being cynical about it. You you are happy for the time you got to sleep. One thing is yes, I was happy about the time I got to sleep and to know other political prisoners or prisoners inside prison to learn about their lives, to learn how is it to cope with the situation. But the thing is, after prison, I felt that some things had changed forever. My life wasn't the same it was before. You see, things mix up very easily, and this is how a geologist. who worked on water conservation, became a cartoonist in college and then became an editorial cartoonist working for three newspapers and drawing three cartoons a day and did mess up his own life with a cartoon that he had no idea what were the consequences in the, in the future. Was that an instigator for you to become even more political and to find a different outlet Or, or a better way than just you know being a satirist or, or a, a gister and, and saying, you know, guys, this is real, let's change it? Uh, at that time, I just wanted to work as a journalist, do what I think I was obligated to do. I used to write about water. I ran an environmental news service at that time, and I drew cartoons. So I just knew that sometimes I had to censor myself in order to stay alive and continue my activities. And because of my cartoons, it was that the people would pay attention to what I was talking about on other issues like environment, water issues. I can say the cartoon turned me into a celebrity in just a few days. And before that... People used to see my cartoons, even they didn't know that because my name is not an Islamic name like Muhammad or Ali or Hassan. Some people had thought that, oh, Nika Hang would possibly be a girl. So they weren't sure even when they were looking at my cartoons that they had been drawn by a man or woman. But at that point, yeah, they knew that this six-foot guy is a male cartoonist. What is a cartoon in Iran? To people, it's a, it's a funny story. A single panel or multi-panel story using funny pictures of mostly politicians. I was an editorial cartoonist, so I used to focus on politics. And you cannot draw Ayatollah's clerics, you cannot draw members of the military or the intelligence community. And sometimes if you draw powerful people, you'd be in trouble. Even if it's the guy is a very popular... soccer coach, football coach. I made fun of one of the coaches and I was told by the editor of that newspaper I was working for not to appear around the area for a few days because there were people passing around to stab me because I'd made fun of that very popular national hero. So if, you know, put shortly, the oppression in Iran fuels the magnitude of cartoons? In a way, it used to. Things are different right now because cartoonists are very limited for so many reasons. But one of them is, yes, because they're not supposed to mess up with powerful people. So you decided to leave rather than stop being a journalist. Why? I, because I, I knew that I could continue my path in an independent way. Of course, independent way means by I, I wouldn't have a publisher for a long time. I had to... Uh, let's say, use a blog to 
publish my work. I knew that there were consequences. I left Iran in 2003, and because the group that had sentenced me to death was known for assassinating people, and I got a... The group? Yeah, there was a group. You're not talking about the government? No, no, no. It's a group Vigilantes? In a way, vigilantes, but connected to the top clerics in the country. They do the dirty work of the regime, parts of the regime. You know what my Westerner mind or, you know, the Israeli mind, not Israel-Iran kind of thing, let's say the Western European-US kind of mindset. The information comes in and I can't really fathom it. Look, uh, it's like the Ministry of Intelligence cannot officially kill you without the a ruling set up by the judge. But there are certain invisible judges that are clerics, and uh, they are mujtahids, they are jurists, top uh, Islamic jurists, who can claim that what you're doing is against Islam and you are acting against the will of God and you have to die. People have been killed by the ruling of those invisible judges. It's, it's a little bit weird for, an, let's say, a Westerner to actually digest what would happen in a country like Iran. Knowing what you know, why didn't you leave before? Uh, sometimes you assume that things that may have happened to other people wouldn't happen to you. Sometimes you assume that you may be lucky. Sometimes you think that, no, things are different. I have a family and they would respect me. But at that point, I understood that, no. First of all, I had hoped that the regime would uh, change gradually and the reform movement would have an impact on the whole system but then i noticed that oh part of the problem are the are the regime reformists they are part of the regime but because they want to be in power and become rich with different contracts including dam building contracts on one side they were claiming that they they're against the fundamentalists, but they were partnering financially with the fundamentalists and the Revolutionary Guards. So through my research, I found out that I had messed up with the wrong people. And they're all from the same root. They're all the children of Ayatollah Khomeini in a way. And if you mess up with part of the tree, the other part is still there. So I at one point, I thought that uh, that death sentence by these clerics meant that I had two choices to make. Either to tell them I was sorry and become a pawn of their game and possibly even uh, gain power gradually and sell my soul, like the story of Faust, or leave the country or die. I decided to live. And I thought that even by leaving the country and I would be away from my family for a while, that would have actually saved my soul. It wasn't easy. I fled in 2003 and my family joined me in Canada in 2007. I didn't see my wife and daughter for four years. And, I, and there were times that I thought that I wouldn't see them again because um, I was diagnosed with PTSD at that time and I was seeing a therapist to actually try to keep myself normal. 
when I was far and away from them, but I was worried for a, a really long time. And I think I did the right thing by leaving the country at that time. And I've been able to draw cartoons. I've been able to use uh, different media platforms or social media platforms to educate people about the real situation and to talk to them about water. How did you get to the point where you draw cartoons from Washington, D.C., talking about water in, in Farsi? I think it was in 2010, I was running a citizen journalism platform that had over 10,000 members at that time. And it became one of the most popular Persian news outlets. And I read a story, something that was happening in Iran, where people were protesting to save a lake in northwestern Iran, Lake Urmia. I had read stories about Lake Urmia and how the regime had built so many dams on the rivers ending up in the lake. And when they had reduced the flow and because of evaporation, level had gone down about four meters. And it's not a very deep lake. It's a very shallow salt lake. And understanding the stories and the effects of uh, oralization of that lake, what had happened to the Aral Sea in the former Soviet Union, and this was happening to Lake Urumia, I started going back to my roots. Who read this article? Nick the journalist or Nick the geologist? The geojournalist. Nick the geojournalist actually read it. I was concerned. And then that caused a real shift in my life. I started reading more about the dams, reading more about the water situation. And I think it was in early 2015 or late 2014, possibly late 2014, that there was a panel at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, D.C., and Tom Friedman of the New York Times was talking about the future of Iran And I asked him a question after the panel that, okay, you said about you know, Iran, we may have a good future, but when it doesn't have enough water, what would happen? He thought for a moment how to answer me. And I said, look, I haven't studied the situation of Iran's water resources, but I've done a story, a documentary story and project with Showtime. Go and watch it. And uh, the name was Years of Living Dangerously. And he had uh, actually traveled to Syria, Yemen, Egypt, Turkey, and studied the effects of climate change. And then I watched those episodes. He was, let's say, part of each. His story was part of each of those episodes. And I noticed that he had missed one point. He had talked about climate change, but he hadn't talked that much about bad water management in those countries. Because I had read things about water management and the effects of intervening with nature's will, if you will. And I proposed this idea to a TV station that let's have a TV show, a weekly show about water. And because uh, things are going to get very ugly in Iran. I think it was those days when the former minister of agriculture claimed that Iran is going to face a dire situation in the near future 
And because of the reduction of Iran's natural water resources, possibly even 50 million Iranians would be forced to leave the country in the next few decades. And that's a member of the government of Iran. Former government, yeah, former member. And now he's again in the government. Mm-hmm. I knew that guy, Isa Kalantari. I had met him so many times in Iran when he was a deputy minister and then when he became a minister and he knew me very well. And I understood that yet when he says something like that, it's going to get really ugly. So I put all the pressure I needed to go forward by one, getting out of cartooning, two, focusing on water, and three, trying to talk to people about the issue. So I talked to politicians, scientists, economists, artists. All Iranian? Mostly Iranian, but also non-Iranian. And people. when you say you talked with them, you... I interviewed them, I uh, went and met them, I, I asked them to think more about the water issues. And me and my colleagues, I'm, I mean, over here, we uh, interviewed singers, artists who had done something about water, but we wanted to encourage them to pay more attention and do more about water issues, to engage and help people understand the dire future they will, they will be facing. One, we had to understand what was going wrong with our water resources. Two, how people could actually save themselves from day zero. So it was then that I uh, was talking to people in South Africa, I was talking to people in Israel, I was talking to people all around the world about their experiences. And I think it was in late 2016 that uh, I met a gentleman in Washington that who was a part of the Israel project, David Hazoni. And then he asked me to write about Iran's water situation. So I did that for the tower. And he gave me a book written by Seth M. Siegel, Let There Be Water. I read the book, I think, in just two or three days, and I left it on a flight. I was so sorry to lose that book. So I got it on iBooks, and I started reading it again. And I contacted Seth Siegel, and we met in New York in early 2017, and I interviewed him for my show. And one of the things that actually encouraged me to understand what Israel had done in the last 70 years with the water resources in this part of the world, getting to know what people like Prime Minister Eshkol did, what people like Simcha Blas had done. And I found out, look, Simcha Blas should be a national hero, a national treasure. His name is supposed to be all around the country, and, and, it, and you can, it's hard to find his name around the country. Do you think we Israelis take water for granted? I think so many people took Simcha Blas for granted. To me, he's a hero. If Israel's uh, drip irrigation has revolutionized agriculture in so many parts of the world, it has to do something with Simcha Blas or what he did in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, early 60s. He may not have been a good politician or he, he may have had bad politics or bad bad decision, political decisions made, but I think without Simcha Blas, we wouldn't have 
Israel today. That's what I, I've learned through the book. I may be wrong, but this is what I'm understanding. And because there were smart politicians who knew how to use his help, if Ben-Gurion or Eshkol were smart, they use his ideas. And now you have all the water institutions over here. You have the Water Commission, you have the water laws of the 1950s, and as a result, people are not wasting water in this country. Something that in Iran, millions of people are wasting our water resources because they don't know the value of water. And I want to educate them. Right after the break, we will hear about the situation of the water sector in Iran and what exactly did Nikau Sarmin when he talked about the mismanagement of the water sector. Wish to learn more about Israeli technologies and the Israeli water sector? The people of Israel Newtech will be glad to answer your questions. Log on to IsraelNewTech.com and don't forget to follow Waterline on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79. And now, back to the episode. We are back to our special interview with Nick Aoussal, and we'll focus now on the many challenges the water sector in Iran will face in the near future. Iran has lost 85% of its groundwater in the last four decades because of deep wells that have been dug by farmers. And we have over 830,000 wells in the country that... 430,000 wells are illegal, one. Two, when talking about the legal, legally dug or drilled wells, farmers are taking more water out of the ground that they're permitted to do. So we have the illegal wells, we have the legal wells, the licensed wells, but farmers are actually depleting the aquifers using those licensed wells as well. So that's one part of the problem. Two, Iran has been relying on groundwater mostly in the last 3,000 years. And the water that's collected through dams and these structures is not enough and sufficient. Three, the amount of rain we're getting is not that much. We have had a reduction in the amount of snow we're receiving in the mountaintops. So you know that by that means we're getting less and less water in our dams during summer and our rivers are gradually drying up. I have to go back about uh, 32 or 33 years. I think it was in fall of 1987 that my father was invited to the cabinet to a cabinet meeting when Prime Minister Mirosin Musavi was the Prime Minister to talk about Iran's water situation. And my father had warned the ministers 
and the Prime Minister that Iran is not going to have a bright future in regards to its water resources. And they have to change the way they are actually using groundwater. They have to store more groundwater and save water for the future using water from flash floods. And they have to change their food production policy. We're not, he, and I quote, he said that we are not supposed to overuse our water resources for food production. We have to be smart in the amount of food we're producing for the future. And we have to pay attention to our population growth as well. He was invited to another cabinet meeting in 89 when Rafsanjani was the president. And he mentioned the same things again to the new president. He was working on his project on flood water management to recharge aquifers. And through his project, he had collected a great amount of water in, a, in an arid zone. And just by controlling flash floods that possibly happened twice a year in that arid zone, so one, he had told them that we're going to have, we're going to face climate change. So that was an early warning to the Iranian government. So many people did not believe in climate change, but he said, look, people in other countries are going to pay attention to this matter and we should take it seriously. We have to take care of our water resources. But what happened was that the government, instead of taking care of its aquifers, decided to build dams to collect water. So he's talking with them about management, and they decide to manage the water. But in the wrong way. They thought that, oh, dams are really photogenic. A big dam is a great opportunity for the president to show that he's doing something. And when you collect a big amount of water and creating a big reservoir... People can see that, oh, we have water. But if we collect water under the ground, people have no idea how much water we have collected. So President Rafsanjani became the dam builder, and he damaged the country with all those dams. And we are damned by those dams. So in a way, it's a damnation. <laughs> <laughs> what is the outlook right now? Look, if, the, if there won't be any change, or is it too late? Water management paradigm, it's, it's getting too late. Because look, in the last, I can say three decades since the start of Rafsanjani's presidency and the plan to build all these major dams in the country, look, from that day up to today, we have, Iran has built over 600 dams. Under the Shah, Iran had less than 20 dams. 600 dams? 600 dams. And 170 of those dams are big dams. But, you know, it makes sense because you can create hydroelectricity. Hydroelectricity is just, I think, possibly 20 to 30 percent of the power we're getting. That's the thing, because we're using a lot of uh, gas and oil to create power in Iran. The other thing is that we have a lot of these, let's say, heat power plants around the country, and they use groundwater to cool them down. And because of that groundwater that has been used, a number of aquifers have been totally depleted. They used the water, but they didn't recharge the aquifer. 
Isn't there anyone there to say, okay, let's build more bridges and roads rather than dams? You're talking about the corrupt system. You're talking about the fact that there should be, you know, big engineering projects for certain companies. Fine. Why dams? They cannot build roads over roads. They can widen them, no? They, they have done so many things. They, they, they're asphalting one road, let's say, once every few months. There are many ways to make money out of these pork projects, if you will. But the thing is, when you build a big dam, many people take advantage of it. The president wants to show off and say that, look, I've created another Hoover Dam for the country. But we have this Hoover Dam effect. We've had it in Iran under the Shah. When the Shah visited Hoover Dam in the 1950s, he went back to the country and said, oh, I want my own Hoover Dam. He loved to, have, to make big dams, but not many. During these years, there were good relations between Israel and Iran. And, you know, Israeli water specialists... Yeah, the Tahal uh, company or institute actually was in Iran, uh, working with um, watershed management and irrigation management experts in the Qazvin area. So the knowledge was there already? Some were actually learning from Israeli experts, and the people of Qazvin had very friendly relationship with Israeli water experts. And also, Iran actually bought two uh, desalination plants, I think, from Israel in the 1970s. Uh, rumor has it that they still are working. Yes. Although they have problems, they haven't been maintained as well as they should have been. So what happened to the knowledge? After the revolution, some of these Iranian scholars who are connected to the regime were trying to m turn everything into in a way, Iranian Islamic, and they wanted to Islamicize the, the universities, they wanted to Islamicize the Iranian agriculture sector. It was part of the ideology to turn the Islamic regime into an independent local power and to act against imperialism and its stooges in the area. By stooges, they, may, they meant the Arab nations, uh, Saudi Arabia, especially Kuwait, and Israel. This was what the Iranian officials were propagating through the media. And there were these scholars that were trying to publicize what the government was doing. So by that, they, they said, that, okay, if the United States is not building dams anymore, we don't care. We'll build our own dams. If uh, the world is against the Islamic regime, we will become self-sufficient in food production. And we don't need to buy wheat from other countries. We will produce our own meat, our own beef, our own wheat, everything. They were depleting the aquifers, the aquifers that had been there for thousands of years and serving Iranians. But Iranians before that were had been using... Qanat is a technology that you derive water from the aquifer through a very mild sloped tunnel that goes from the surface into the alluvium and aquifer 
and gets water out of aquifer in a constant basis and you don't overuse the water in the aquifer. So the aquifer is being recharged and you get the water out of the aquifer. So fine, you don't go with the Israeli knowledge that you've gained. Why not go back to old Persian traditions? Because IRGC and others could not make money out of it. That's the thing. And look, uh, in the last four decades, 30,000 Qanats have dried up because of the depletion of aquifers, the Qanats that were serving farmers and people. One of the reasons, of course, I have to say of our unsustainable development is Truman's Point Four program. After World War II, Truman's Point Four program wanted to uh, turn Iran into a powerful country to stand in front of Soviet Union. So they brought different types of technology to Iran. One of them was deep well digging and drilling. One of the other things was powerful motor pumps. So before that, farmers used to use minimal amount of water to irrigate their farms. There were ditch commissioners that were actually giving water to different farmers based on the amount of land they have and how much they're using the land. But after that, farmers thought that, oh, we don't need those nasty ditch commissioners. We can use as much water as we want using those deep wells and our powerful motor pumps. That was the start of our degradation of the aquifers we had all around the country. After the revolution, the six, I think we had 60,000 wells before the revolution. Today we have over 830,000 wells. Which brings us to the end of March 2019. The death toll is now in the tens of people. We are reaching hundreds of people killed by floods all over Iran. Because of lack of enough watershed management. A big part of those floods could have been managed. A lot of that water that came from all the top altitudes of different basins and came down through gravity and hit cities, a big amount of that water could have been diverted through different artificial basins and channels and actually absorbed by the ground and being used for artificial recharge. The dams should have kept them, stopped Look, them. The, when you build a multi-purpose dam that one, you want to produce energy, two, you want to collect water, three, you want to regulate the river. When you don't get enough rain, you want to store as much water you can. And then when you get a big, powerful flash flood and you have too much water in your dam, you cannot control the flood. You cannot control the flow. This happened in many parts of the country. Water management is not an easy thing. It's the knowledge of system of systems. It's complicated. You cannot use one managing skill in one spot of the country and just clone it and use that all around the country. When you don't have valleys, you cannot build dams. And because of our geostructure in the country and so many faults that we have, It's not safe to build dams all around the country. So in some parts, 
you are not supposed to use dams. You have to use other means to control the water. And that's where watershed management could have helped you. So many of these streams, so many of tributaries could have been managed in a way that we would have had very fewer victims. I believe that if a nation doesn't pay attention to its water resources, it doesn't pay attention to nothing. Culture, politics, social issues, human rights, development, life, environment. Are you hurt by the Iranian government? Yes. I'm not in my country. I have to use uh, indirect means of communication to reach out to people. I am not able to see my family, my friends, my loved ones in the country. I cannot even enter certain parts of the world that people have been abducted from them to Iran. Uh, I have uh, felt the bad breath of agents who even wanted to steal my laptop in London in 2009. They, they got that close. And I fought back and got back my laptop on the street. So by that means, I can tell you that, yes, I'm mad. I'm angry about the Iranian regime. But I don't want to turn hatred to something that would bother me. I want to use it to help Iranian people understand what they are dealing with, with a regime that does not respect them, that does not respect Iran's natural resources, and is stealing the future of the generations to come. What do you see happening in the next 10 years in Iran? I don't think Iran, the Iranian regime could sustain itself. It's been around for four decades. I mean, we, ju we just commemorated it. How many years from now would Ayatollah Khamenei even stay alive? He's almost 80. And after his death, there will be a power struggle between different IRGC generals. There may be a coup or a silent coup in a way. Many regime officials want to change the way things are. Going back to, let's say, having a supreme leader, then a prime minister, not even a president. That's one thing. Two, Iran got a lot of water through these floods, but it wasn't able to store that water in aquifers, and it's not able to manage the water using all those big mega dams it has built. So parts of the country are going to go thirsty this summer, though we got lots of water. Iran is losing a big chunk of its soil on a yearly basis, annual basis. Iran naturally, I, I can't say naturally, but it's losing... 2 billion tons of soil each and every year. The value of that soil is more than the oil it's selling to other countries right now. So some believe the value is over $50 billion. Even some say it's over $100 billion. And when you say that they lose the soil? Through erosion, through bad water management, through destruction of forests. When you lose the soil on your farmlands, you are helping desertification on your own. And when 
a farmland turns into desert, it's not good enough for agriculture anymore. It's not like what the Israelis did in the 40s and 50s with the Negev desert that turned it into a big, big farmland, collective farmland. We have turned our farmlands into deserts. So in a way, if you want to compare Israel and Iran, we have the art of turning a farmland into a desert, and you have the art of turning a desert into a farmland. By that means, yes, we are different. What does it feel like to be here in Israel? Did you ever imagine that? I was nine years old when the revolution happened. I remember the stories my dad had told about the Israeli experts that were helping farmers in Iran. So they knew something. They had something to teach us. They had something to add to our knowledge. That's a value. And after the revolution? After the revolution, many of us were totally brainwashed, thinking that whatever is happening against Iran has to do with international Zionism. Zionism is a taboo word if you use it in a positive way. So many Iranians, without even having knowledge of the history of people who created the state of Israel hate Israel, but have no idea because of the regime propaganda. And if anyone wants to study the history of Israel, the history of the development of the country based on its technology or water management or other things or democracy in Israel, that person would be in trouble. I'm so happy that I'm here because I want to witness things that I have read about. I want to visit farmlands. I want to see how things have changed. I, I'm a geologist, so time is of a lot of essence to me. I want to know how early Zionists were able to change this land because they knew that this land was their land and they had to keep it and they had to restore it and they had to evolve it into a safe haven for the future generations and people who wanted to seek refuge. So that's a value. I want to learn, and I'm here to learn. Were you anxious, excited when you landed here? I was. I was. You don't know the story of my Ancestry.com story that I, f- I found out that I had 7% European Jewish blood. <laughs> and the funny thing is that I'm a Sayyid. Uh, you know what a Sayyid is? I'm a descendant of the Prophet from my father's side. And from my mother's side, I have 7% Jewish blood. <laughs> a friend of mine said that you are a conflict on your own. Or a resolution. Or a resolution. On a very personal level, for me, Iran is a lost paradise. Unbeknownst to Nick, when he talked about the Israeli water specialists that worked in Kazvin and its dam, he managed to hit a raw nerve with me. Out of all the water projects built by Israelis in Iran during the Shah's time, Nick chose to mention the one with the utmost significance to me. You see, my grandfather headed that project. He was a civil engineer with an Israeli company and worked and lived in Iran in the days that the relations between the countries were productive and extremely beneficial for both of them. My mother grew up in Iran for a few years. Growing up, the stories I heard about this magical place, Iran, about its people, its culture, its food, its countryside, flavors, sounds, atmosphere, are sadly enough, still, just stories. For me, their reality is behind a thick veil. 
As for my grandfather, if there was one place he wished to visit once more before he died, it was Iran. The once vital dialogue between the countries should begin between people, not governments, says Nikosal. I believe that Iranians need to learn from Israelis. Also, there are certain things that Israeli water scientists and water management experts can learn from Iranian experience, like flood water management and recharging aquifers using flood water without actually exposing that much water to the sun and evaporation after the rainfall. There are different ways that we could help each other. We're not in that environment yet, but I hope that we could start this conversation in the next few years before something happens to the Iranian regime. We could have a platform of cooperation that when the Islamic regime is gone, we have an agreement. We have the ability to cooperate and change things for good. Let's work together even before the downfall of the regime. We have to be ready for that. Waterline was brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.